Today's scripture reading will come from Esther 4, 11 through 14. All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are all in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Today we're going to look at uh, the book of Esther. We're not going to walk through it. I'm not even going to tell the whole story, so I give you permission right now to turn to Esther, and you feel, through, feel free to read through it. If the Bible is kind of new to you and you've never read the story of Esther, that might be what you want to do while I present. But I'd also encourage you to come back tonight. One of the reasons we do our dramas and Vacation Bible School the way that we do is so that uh, our children know that the Bible is more than just words on a page. It really happened. These are real stories, and, and the goal is to bring them to life and to make them come out of those pages of our Bible and to show that it's real. And so that's what we do in our preschool classes, the marketplace as well, is to try and make the Bible come alive for them. So I hope you'll come back. For our adults we, and teens, we also have um, a special class for you, and, and we're going to look at very specific themes through the book of Esther, and I hope that you'll be a part of that as well after the drama. When it comes to vacation, I heard somebody tell a child the other day, vacation Bible school, and they said, what's that? VBS. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's funny when it's known by its acronym, not the, the, the real words. But uh, we all have probably memories of vacation Bible school. The older we are, we probably still have lots of older memories, but lots of maybe the church where you grew up had a vacation Bible school. Vacation Bible schools meant a lot to the Edmund Church of Christ for, for many, many years. In fact, our first marketplace was held on this 21 acres where the building is now. In fact, it was built about right where I stand uh, before we even, we even built down here. One of those early years, we did um, Jericho, the walls of Jericho. And Dana Leach, who was working with our children at the time, uh, we built the wall. I don't know if some of you are around, some of you old-timers. We got boxes and papier-mâché them and... Uh, and built the wall down here for everybody to see. Weather and Vacation Bible School seem to go together. I mean, our weather event this year is heat, and uh, the weather event that year was rain. Now, I'm talking about a long time ago, so you old-timers know back in those days, you didn't go to Lowe's or Home Depot to get boxes. If you're moving, you remember where you went to get your boxes, the good, sturdy, heavy boxes at a place that we normally didn't frequent or support their products? That was where they had the best boxes. And so everybody brought, we've, we've got boxes. We build the wall. It rains. The paper mache comes off the boxes. And we start advertising drinks that we normally would not find ourselves promoting. The wall had to come down pretty fast. Lots of memories with Vacation Bible School. And we're, we're, we made the disappointing decision the marketplace is going to move inside this, this year. It's a wise decision with the temperatures and everything. But, uh, it, and we will adjust. 
But weather has had a lot to do with it. There's just lots of memories of Vacation Bible School. The drama over all the years. I brought back a picture of a blast from the past from our drama. Once again, for us old timers, we remember. If you're new here, that's Dr. Don Vinzant. He was our pulpit minister for many years. He passed away over a decade ago, but he was in the drama, and his acting was, let me say, memorable. <laughs> he was loud and proud and over the top. What great memories. Okay, just a little behind the curtains. Close up of his hand. Can you see it? He's written his lines on his hand. I'm looking at it. Don, you had three lines. Can't you remember them? <laughs> oh, we love Don Vincent. So many wonderful memories of Vacation Bible School. But that was then and this is now. That was our day, but this is our day. And it's our time to make Vacation Bible School special for this generation, for this year, for these kids. And so as we look at the book of Esther, we are, we're going to be thinking about this thought of how it's, there are times when we have to step up and step out, out. I played Little League Baseball many, many years ago. Of course, obviously, it was very different back in those, those days. I don't recall T-ball, and I don't re remember ever hearing coach pitch. But we also started playing a little bit older in age. And I can remember t uh, playing Little League Baseball. Practices were fine, but the games were very, very stressful. Part of the reason was you never knew who the other pitcher was going to be. And so in Little League Baseball, one of the common memories that all of us have of that generation were getting hit because the pitchers were just learning how to pitch. Now, they might have been mean and doing it on purpose, but quite frankly, even if they weren't, you got hit pretty often. And so one of my first and most vivid memories of Little League Baseball is uh, learning all the phrases, you know, uh, on deck, learned what on deck meant, uh, batter up, dump, calling, and you get in the batter's box and you get ready. And then the pitcher throws the ball, and you just hope that you, you can hit it. It's a, back in the days when you closed your eyes and swung. But if you all kept your eye, I remember one time I was up to bat, just a kid, you know, and, and waiting, and the pitcher throws, and, you know, you're watching not so you can hit it, no, no, so it won't hit you oftentimes. And he throws it, and I can tell it's going to hit me. And so you naturally try and step out and away. And when you do that, what do you what do you make available for the ball to hit? Not your shoulder, your side. And sure enough, that pitch hit me right here, you know, just right in the diaphragm. Now, I, I had no idea what happens if, when you got the breath knocked out of you. I, it never happened to me before. That pitch hit me, and all my breath left, and I could not catch my breath. I, I mean, it was my first time of ever experiencing that. It was frightening. I mean, I went down gasping for air. And the coach comes out. He's, he's obviously not near as concerned as I am. And I don't know if they still do this or not. I know in that time. I'm, he throws me over my back. He grabs my belt and just pumps me up and down, you know, a few times to get the air going. I don't know if that's, that's just an Ida Bell. That's what they did or if that actually works. But I, I got my breath back after a few minutes, and, and I was okay. And, of course, you know, I got to go to first base, which was the goal. The problem was it wasn't the last inning. And all of a sudden, the call comes out, on deck, Grizzly, you're on deck. And the umpire says, batter up, and you've got to get back in the game. That was, uh, that was pretty challenging. There are times in life where we are called to step up, and that means we have to step out of our comfort zone. And even if you've been hit before, you've got to keep going. In the story of Esther, there are so many powerful themes 
But one of the things that is very clear is if you want to make a difference in this world for God, you've got to take risks. God is not calling us to live a life that conforms or to a life that's just comfortable. He calls us to step up and to go. He calls us out of our comfort zones and to, to take a risk in life. God calls us to have a life that is meaningful and purposeful and missional. God calls us to take advantage of the opportunities he gives us to make a difference in this world for his glory. And making a difference in this world sometimes requires risk. Another theme that you can't miss in Esther, though, is that God is also alive. And not only is he alive, he is active. And the story of Esther shows clearly that he is alive and active in her life and in that time. But the point is very clear. Even though people don't call out the name of God that often these days, that does not mean God is not still alive and active in your story, in my story. Because the God who was the God in the day of Esther is still God now. He is still alive, and he still hasn't changed. And he is obviously active in our lives and in this world today. So when times are tough and life seems headed in a wrong direction, remember, we're following God. And this is a God of great reversals, the one who can take what is happening and turn it around. That was true of Mordecai. That was true of the Jews and that can still be true of us. When times are tough and life seems headed in the wrong direction, remember we follow a God of great reversals. All right, so let's just go and make a, a few observations. The first observation I'd make is this idea of counterintuitive living. Sometimes how we live our lives is counter to what the world kind of has taught us. So when, when you grew up, wherever you grew up, you learned certain things from your environment where you were. You, uh, you learned the, the kind of foods. You uh, learned how activities to take advantage of. You even learned your language. So for many of us, our, our native language was probably English. But even though in this world you learn English, where you're from determines a lot of how you learn English. It at least determines your accent. And so if you're up north, you're going to get that northern accent. If you're from a, a place like I grew up in southeastern Oklahoma, you're going to have this little hick kind of accent. It's really cute, especially with the little kids that were raised there. So you have all these different, and, and you know English well enough, likely, to, to recognize the different accents. Sometimes they are so dramatic, you have a hard time understanding what a person says. I, you understand English, but you, you don't quite get the wording. Now, I don't know what they say in other places, but I do know in Idabel, Oklahoma, there were certain things that we used to say that, that you probably recognize, like squeet, you know, youngry, squeet. Are you hungry? Let's go eat. It, it just, or accurate. You know what accurate is? It's when you have an accurate. So you just words, it makes sense to me. I, I've heard them all my life. It probably makes sense to you as well. But it's just different because you learned an accent. In this world where we have grown up, it has taught us how it thinks. It, it's kind of formed our language, our accent, our look. And so we have this intuition about what's happening around us. And what God calls us to do is to not be of this world, although we live in this world, but to, be, uh, to, to just live in this world, but be Christians, to be set apart. And so sometimes that means it's counterintuitive to do the things that God calls us to do. The way of living God calls us to follow is counterintuitive to what the world teaches. And, this is, and worldly wisdom is going to fail us. 
And so this pathway of stepping up and stepping out for God oftentimes won't make sense from our perspective of the world. So we have to learn how to look at things differently. And that was definitely true of that day. An example of this very quickly in the story of, of counterintuitive living comes in Esther chapter 1. In chapter 1, you, you read the story of the king, King Xerxes, having this big banquet. And at the banquet, he and all the generals or all the important people, the men that he had with him, uh, got uh, influenced by the high spirits. Obviously, those boxes we had used at our first VBS had been taken, emptied at their banquet, and they were in high spirits. And so the king decides he's going to show off his bride, his wife, Vashti, who was very beautiful and pleasant to look at. And he calls her to join the banquet so he can show her off, and she refuses. In my perspective, she's a pretty, pretty smart lady. The king is upset, as were the men that were with him, and he asks the men advice. What should I do since Vashti refused to come? And here's the advice he received and acted upon. Esther 1.19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. That edict and that decision leads us to Esther who will eventually become queen and rule. This is not the last edict of the king that he issues through the recommendations of others. Haman's going to give him a recommendation to, because he doesn't like Mordecai the Jew to make a decree that will lead to the killing of all the Jews and the loss of all their property. And the king agrees to that. And he issues that. His influence, so that influence on him concerns Mordecai and in respect all the Jews, which would mean it would include Esther as well. After he makes this decree, Mordecai gets word to Esther. Esther hears that Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes. She sends a messenger to him. And here's the message Mordecai sends back to her, Esther 4.8. Mordecai gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation to show to Esther and explain it to her and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for, for with him for her people Esther's uncle Mordecai who had raised her gives her this message it says you need to go into the king's presence and beg for your people now, this is a little counterintuitive to her for a lot of reasons first of all the previous queen who she replaced has been banished from whose presence? Xerxes' presence. And you're wanting me to go count, you know, go into the presence of the guy who kicked out the last one and never got, she never got to be in his presence again. And so she says, and besides that, there's a law. You know this, Mordecai. Here's her message back in Esther 4.11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know, that would include Mordecai, that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courts without being summoned by the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king so what makes sense to Esther is not to go into the presence of the king the one who could banish her and not just banish her he could also kill her and 
the king hasn't shown any inclination for the last 30 days to bring me in, so I don't see it changing in the future, and yet you want me to go? What makes sense, what seems safest, is to stay away. And yet you're calling me to go? Maybe I should just wait until I'm summoned. Mordecai's message back, verses 13 and 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And the famous statement. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What Mordecai calls her to do doesn't seem to make sense from a worldly perspective. But I'd point out we don't serve a worldly God. We serve an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. One who sees and knows what we don't know. One who has the power over this world and over life's circumstances. One who is both with us now and forevermore. And when this God calls us to step up and to step out, sometimes it means going against our worldly intuition, our knowledge, the facts, the circumstances, and just follow the calling that God put in front of us, even if we don't understand why. We're called to not waste the opportunities God put in front of us. We are here. We have this opportunity. The call goes out, batter up, even if it was painful last time. I'd also point out to you that Esther takes this calling very seriously. And we should take our calling very serious as well. She took the call and the opportunity. Look seriously. Look at her response. Esther 4.16. She tells Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I mean, you can tell she's taking this serious. Fasting for three days. It shows her devotion to, to God and a devotion to her people as well. She's willing to risk. She's willing to have faith to follow and courage to act. And she has decided she is going to trust God with the outcome. If I perish, then I perish. But I'm stepping up. Kind of reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story? Where the, they don't bow down to the idol, and because of that, they're being thrown into the, the fiery furnace. And here are their words to the king in Daniel 3, 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your, your majesty's hand. But even if he does, does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of golds, gold you have set up. He can, but no matter what happens, we're going to follow God. Because he's a God worth trusting. He's a God who is able. And their goal and our goal should be to do what is right and to trust in God. Easy for me to say, much more challenging to live in life. So how do you trust God when you don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, when it's counterintuitive? What does it look like? What did it look like then, and what does it look like now? You know, in Bible times, you remember the story of the children of Israel as they're leaving uh, Egyptian bondage, and they're going to the promised land? And you remember they're, they're out there, and, and they're moving away from, from Egypt, and they come to the sea, 
and they can't cross it. And on one side, there's mountains on either side, and the only way to go forward is because in the back, the Egyptian army is pursuing them. And they're at life's cul-de-sac, the, the dead end. And what do they do? And in that moment, we know now that God was preparing them for deliverance. They didn't know it then, but they saw it later. When they looked back and they remembered that time, here's their words. Psalm 77, 19. Your path led us through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. We can't see the path. We don't, we don't see how steps take us. That They end. All we can see is the water. And yet, you took us through that water. God knows a path that sometimes we cannot see. He can take us where we don't understand. I don't know if any of you have been to Disneyland, Disney World recently. I haven't been in a long time. One of my first times I went with young kids, they used to have a ride. I don't know if they still do or not. Something about Mr. Toad's something. It was, here's what I loved about Mr. Toad's ride. It was inside and air-conditioned, and it wasn't painful. And it was for children, all right? So I, but I do remember at one point, it looked like you were going to hit a wall or something, and all of a sudden, at the last minute, it opens, and you, you go through. It's, it, was, it was fun. It was memorable. Listen, our lives are not children's ride. But there are many times, just like that ride, where it looks like you're going to hit something. There's no place to go, and at the last minute, it opens up for us. Following God oftentimes is like that. Even when you can't see His footprints, we trust God, and to trust He has something in mind, a pathway in front of us. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. I mean, in, in the morning, in the dawn, sometimes we can't see as far. It's not full light yet. And as you go through life, it sometimes becomes a little bit clearer. But one day, we're going to stand in the full light of eternity. And we'll see why God chose this path for us and how this path followed Him. There are so many things in life that we see no value in now. We don't see any purpose in the path. But in the full light of eternity, we'll understand. And so we just have to trust God. And it's not easy. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. In other words, you can't lean on your culture and what the world has taught you and what seems to make sense because we can't figure it all out. Someday you'll look back and, and you can be thankful, but right now you just acknowledge Him or submit. We don't like that word. But we, we submit to God and say, God, you're calling us to step up. We're going to do it. And he will make your paths straight. I'm not for sure what all is meant there by the author. I do know when a path is curvy, you can't see very far. You can't see the end. And when he makes our paths straight... Maybe what he's saying is, even though there's going to be curves and things like that, let me show you the end. Let, let me point you to the end. This is where you're going. Now, now, head out. The path is straight. I can see further. I can see the end. I know where I'm headed. So trust God, even when you don't understand. 
even when it doesn't make doesn't make sense because God does not make mistakes and so we find ourselves here don't criticize God on an unfinished plan it's not done yet so you can't see his footprints in the water follow God Proverbs, Psalm 37 verses 23 and 24 the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his ways when he falls he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand I don't know about you but there's a lot of peace in that God has a custom plan for each one of us it's a mistake for me to try and copy somebody else's plan and follow their path God has a path for me and he's going to make it straight and on this journey remember we're not in control God is the one who directs we submit to him because when I try and do it my way I, I end up stumbling over a root or something in the path and when I do that some of you like me have been watching things around you instead of your feet on a pathway you, you trip and you fall headlong you ever made a headlong fall it's not pleasant but God says on this journey on this path hold my hand and when you stumble and fall I will catch you no headlong fall because I have you by the hand you might stumble but you will not fall so quite frankly I hope you see the joy in this the joy of taking God by the hand and letting him direct your path to trust God even when you don't understand what it means is as you travel in the journey you're not in control you're not driving so you don't have to worry about that you are a passenger with God at the steering wheel and enjoy the scenery look around you and about you and maybe every once in a while you're going over a mountain pass and you're looking down and say this is a little scary trust the driver look at the scenery enjoy life you don't have to worry about getting lost you don't have to worry about falling down this world might try and hurt you but they cannot take eternity from you the path the immediate steps ahead of you you can walk with confidence because you hold God by the hand trust God even when you don't understand all right we got to wrap this up let me just give you a few quick points there is great value in clear communication and I hope you hear the clear messages of Esther it clear communication is a characteristic of the of the book of the story starting with the king and his edicts he liked to make edicts and make several of them you can look at, at all of them but let's just look at Esther 122 and you can look at 3 12 through 13 and 8 13 and 14 it has similar things Mordecai is, is we think probably wrote this book and if he if he wrote it he was not a creative writer because he just says the same thing over and over again or either the king was not very creative in his edicts so they all went something like this the events took place like this he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language using his native tongue so here's what he did he sent messages he sent them quickly so everybody would get them he sent it out so everybody received it and it was written in their script in their language and it was read to them in their native tongue so in Idabel it sounded different than it sounded in New York people could understand it no accurate no squeak nothing like that everybody knew exactly what was being understood and they could understand it and so here's what the king did the message was sent it was received and it was understandable 
And I want to tell you the story of Esther is clear communication. God is clearly alive and active. And God is at work even when times are tough and circumstances are difficult. And that work of God is he is always working to accomplish his will. And what is his will? The salvation of his people. The saving of people. Sometimes we just need to step up and step out to see God working. Clear communication. And here's the clear, another clear message from Esther. Is that God is a God that glories in reversals. So things look so bad right now? Watch God reverse them. He's the God of great reversals. It's obvious to God's people, the Jews, that God changed things in the story. Move to Esther 8, 17. In every province after, after Mordecai, the story goes on, and all the Jews, Mordecai writes an edict that, where they can defend themselves so they're, they're going to be okay. And in verse 17, in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, the God followers, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I mean, they were, the, the Jewish people, the people of God, God's people were, were rejoicing. It was obvious to them that God took one situation and reversed it. But it wasn't just true of God's people. It was true to, it, it was evident to everyone. And they feared that, that God, the God of the Jews. They were in awe of his power to reverse situations. And they saw that reversal and thought, you know, maybe I, I want to make that journey as well. Maybe he could reverse my situation as, as well. And they decided to join with this God. That was true for Mordecai and Esther. God reversed their situations. It was true of those people who chose to follow. And sad to say, God even reversed Haman's outlook, didn't he? And God, who is so good at reversing what seems to be a negative thing, can do the same for you and me. And so the call is to step up. Step out in faith. Batter up. At the, near the end of the book in Esther 10, we read this about Mordecai, Esther 10.3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. Why? Because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. God's will is always the saving of his people. And by the way, who's his people? He created us all. And he's working hard to save all of us, every one of us. So maybe it's time we reversed our direction. New Testament's going to call that repentance. And to follow, choose to follow God, to submit to him in the waters of baptism. To say, I'm no longer in, in charge. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. In other words, I submit to him. He's the one making the calls. I'm holding his hand. He's got the steering wheel. Have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism and live this new life. If you've never done that, today is the day. I hope you'll do it. For many of us, we're just headed the wrong direction. And we don't see a way to get back on track. The call to you is just to step up. Get back in the batter's box. 
I know it's not always easy, but God is calling us to respond. It didn't make sense to Esther, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. But the pathway of common sense, worldly sense, leads to destruction. And God does not want anyone he created to head that path. And he is working for your salvation and mine. And he is working through us. So step up, batter up, and watch him work with wonder. I'm not for sure what Esther and her attendants and the Jewish people prayed about, you know, when they were in that three days of fasting. I can't even imagine what they were feeling. I can't imagine sometimes what, what you're going through and how you handle it. But in those times when our hearts turn to God, I mean, serious, we're serious about the situation. I think the common thread of what we all feel and should feel is a need for God to work. And so we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you need to respond publicly, we'd love for you to do so. We'll also have a couple of shepherds in the parlor that would love to meet with you if you'd rather have a more private setting. But as you sing the song, ask what God's calling you to do. And no matter where you find yourself on life's journey, I think all of our prayers should be, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every day, I need you. My one request, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Let's stand together and sing.